resilience, flexibility, analytical thinking, creative thinking, they're not the kinds of things that anyone gets better at by being told what to do, right? They're the kinds of things that we only really improve through having a go and thinking for ourselves. Welcome to Leading the Future, a podcast exploring the ways in which technology is transforming the workplace and the essential leadership skills required to thrive in the ever-changing landscape. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Brennan Jacoby. Dr. Brennan Jacoby is a philosopher and the founder of Philosophy at Work, an organization helping businesses think their best. Brennan holds a BA, MA and PhD in philosophy and his doctoral work analyzed trust in the context of interpersonal relationships and corporate behavior. With Philosophy at Work, he helps businesses and their people develop the psychological safety and cognitive confidence they need to think their best as they navigate an ever-changing professional landscape. Dr. Brennan, you are the founder of Philosophy at Work, and I love the mission. If you think better, you will do better. Tell us about how you came to this and your background. Yeah, thank you, Laura. And um, thank you, Laura and Arif, for having me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to join you in this conversation. Um, So Philosophy at Work is a collective of people like myself that have backgrounds in philosophy and are embedded in different businesses across different um, industries and sectors. And we're working, as you say, with businesses to help them think their best so that they do their best. And the way that we came to this was because we were noticing there was um, so much need across different industries and markets for people to make sense of things. We really want to do our best work. And yet, in order for us to achieve with our businesses and just with our own careers so that we sort of wake up and feel like we're doing meaningful work, um, we need to be able to take in all the complex, you know, uncertain stuff that's going on and make sense of it. And that requires us to be able to think really well through it, right? So um, being able to process, okay, I've got all this data. What do I do with it? How do I notice where my own my own sort of lenses are coming into it, my own subjectivity, and therefore spotting that and you know leveraging that where it's appropriate, but then also noticing, okay, I think I'm making this strategic decision just because I like it versus is that really the best one for my team or the best one for the business at this time? So Um, philosophy is really helpful in helping us notice our subjectivity um, and also be able to sort of um, make the best decisions, um, connect with people better, be able to clearly articulate what we're thinking as well. Um, And also, I'll just go back a little bit further, because I think sometimes when we think about philosophy, we think about philosophies or sort of specific um, maybe periods in history even. Um, And we need to distinguish between philosophy Uh, philosophies and philosophers. So a lot of times with philosophy at work, we're focusing on philosophy itself, and that is philosophical ways of thinking. So if you go right back to the ancient Greek sort of etymology of that word, philo means love, and sophia means wisdom. And when we're doing philosophy, we want to be pursuing wise ways of living, and I would say wise ways of working as well. So it's it's a, a philosophy is the pursuit of, of good stuff, right? The pursuit of wisdom. Um, philosophies are accounts of what it means to live that way. So stoicism is a philosophy, um, existentialism is a philosophy, utilitarianism is a philosophy, all, the, all these things. And philosophers are just the people that come up with those philosophies. So when philosophy at work works with you know, um, I don't know, a tech firm or a law firm or a financial services firm, 
we're not really teaching philosophies so much. Um, and we're not so concerned that people walk away being able to talk about like historical philosophers. What we really want to help uh, people do is philosophy. We want to help them pursue wisdom in their own context. We want them to be their best thinkers thinking for themselves so that they can also go on and do their best, right? So we might reference some philosophies or philosophers, but it's only to show ways of thinking. And then we translate that into the sort of day-to-day -day work that these people are doing. Fantastic. And to try and frame the conversation, we were just talking before we came on air around some of the challenges in the world today. I think it's really useful to sort of put that as a context of after we before we dig into the detail. So there's a lot going on in the world of work right now. So previously mm. work was very structured. It was a nine to five. You would go to your office, you would sit in the same desk working with you know the same group of people often. If you needed to go and see someone, you would know where to go. Everything was quite fairly felt fairly transactional in terms of you went to work, then you left work and you came home. Obviously, technology made the boundaries blur a little bit. But if we reflect on work today in 2023 and we include things like an economic backdrop that's uncertain, are still processing things like coming out of COVID and, and other things in the world. How, how do you see it? Like, it sounds like it feels like there's a lot going on right now. Does that match the experience you have? Yes. <laughs> yes, in a lot of ways. So it matches my, my experience personally. You know, I, I just in my own life, I feel like there's I notice all those things you mentioned. Um, but it's also what we're seeing with the clients that we work with. And, you know, so we're, we're often brought in by people leaders. Right. So learning development, HR, strategy leads, C-suite people. But then sometimes we're working with those leadership groups or really often we're, we're working with uh, a sort of cross-sectional um, group of population across the business, right? So um, I say that just to say that when I'm in meetings with those leaders about you know the, the sessions, the thinking skills we might be doing, what I'm hearing from them is our business is going through all those things you mentioned, Arif, that, that, that there's all the, there's the uncertainty, there's the, the change, there's the pace, um, there's the sort of noise in the system and therefore they're saying we need our teams to not just wait for us to tell them what to do because it's moving at such a fast pace. We need them to be more sort of autonomous and exercise their agency, which is to say think for themselves and, and come up with good ideas. We need everyone at the coalface, if I can say that, to sort of spot the opportunities, spot the challenges and be able to, to move to, so that we can respond more quickly. And so, yes, I'm seeing it in my own life. I'm seeing it in the meetings that we're having with leaders and it's coming up all the time in the actual sessions that we're doing where those are populated with people from right across the right across the business. Um, some of the things I think are, it, it's tricky because on the one hand, yes, this is, this is very much going on. And there's been a lot said over the last couple of years about um, uh, an increase in you know what we would sort of uh, loosely call all this VUCA kind of stuff, right? Um, but of course, it's it's not it's not new. It's not that in say the '90s or something when things what you know, might look back and say, oh, that felt like a completely different time. It was, it was much different markets, very much more stable in some ways. Maybe um, it's not that it was actually you know what was it that, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus said the only constant is change, right? So there's always been change. On the one hand, I think we're noticing it more now. But I think also there is actually more change in the ways we're working, of course. Um, you referenced the nine to five thing, the sort of asynchronicity thing, the location of work. There is necessarily more change. Um, 
so it's it's and, and what I'm really seeing, what I think is really interesting, also something maybe we'll chat about is the way in which people are responding to those things. So before maybe there were there was change, and we knew that kind of in the like Heraclitus kind of point, but you know, the changes would happen within the office. And we still knew we were going from home to the office and then addressing some of those things. Now it feels like there's change that is that's that's sort of, I don't know, location agnostic and hitting us at all times. And I think it's just a lot more for us to hold in our heads, in our bodies, in ourselves, you know. So so yeah, there's a lot more going on. And I think that's where I think philosophy can be really helpful because it teaches us to slow down and notice what's going on and check how we're responding to it rather than just reacting. You touched on something earlier as well that I wanted to dig into. So I feel like I thought this was just me, but from what you said, it sounds like it's a typical thing. So during lockdown, COVID, et cetera, you have more time in your hands to pick up side projects, you get involved in other things. And I only felt that recently, having been on a personal holiday for two weeks, it was only then that I put down all of the different balls that I was juggling. And it was only when it came to starting to pick some of them up that I was kind of like, hang on, why, why am I doing those five things? You know, it doesn't seem to make sense now. What advice would you give to people in that situation? Because another theme I'm th seeing is a lot of burnout. When you speak to people, they say they're really burnt out. And I normally ask them, when was the last time you went on a proper holiday? And they're like, oh, I haven't done this year. And strangely, that seems to be a theme, not just in one, one company, but across multiple companies. Now, do you see that theme, first of all? And if you do, what would be the advice for someone who's sort of in that in that situation? Yeah, that's a, re a really great question. Um, and just, you know, one that I wrestle with personally as well. I feel like I'm I'm ever expanding and rarely contracting. Um, and that's a challenge, right? Because we are finite people with finite amount of time, but it doesn't feel like that. I think, I, so, so this is, I think what I would suggest to, to us all, myself included, is to cultivate a practice which doesn't have to, that sounds like it's a whole other project that you've got to you've got to develop it doesn't have to be a big thing but just sort of put a reminder in your phone um to i don't know when you're standing boiling the kettle or making a coffee or something where we might otherwise just sort of mindlessly scroll through something um to instead check in with what you're doing that day or what you're about to go and do and then interrogate why you're doing it and what the motives are um, and how you're thinking about it. So for, the reason I say this is I said a moment ago that, you know, we're finite people with finite amount of time in our lives. Um, we know there's only 24 hours in a day and yet we live as if it's not so boundaried. You know, I say yes to things when my schedule is already pretty full because I go, oh, do you know, if I just hustle a bit more, I can probably get it in. And this is a great opportunity. So I don't want to say no to this thing. And you know, so I'm when I'm doing that hustle, I, you know, about a year ago, I admitted to myself that I love the hustle. <laughs> so if I'm if I'm talking about like feeling stressed about being too busy, I have to acknowledge that part of that is because I love it, right? And um, yes, I don't love the consequences. I need to rest. But part of the reason it's harder for me to bring that into my life is because I love the hustle. So, and, and I'm never going to get better at resting until I acknowledge the fact that, you know what, it's not just, I'm not just doing it because someone else asked me to, it's because I actually love doing that. So I have to acknowledge that. And what I'm saying is that that move only comes from me doing the reflective work. And so I have, we have to notice like, okay, how am I, how am I treating my relationship with time? Am I living as if it's this uh, stretchy thing that I can just fit more and more in without any consequences, positive or, or otherwise? 
Or what would happen if I recognized, okay, actually, it's a little bit more finite than that. Um, I've only got so many slots for calls in the day. So, and I've also got other stuff I want to do. Um, and I don't want to get burnt out. So what am I going to choose? Because then that, that reflection on how we're using time pushes us to then schedule differently. And that pushes us to go, oh, well, yeah, there's these six things I picked up. You know, a few of them aren't serving me anymore, actually. Why am I doing them? Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna try to drop them. And then if it's hard for me to do that, again, that pushes me back into the self-awareness piece of going, why is that a struggle for me? You know, um, and maybe a little bit later on, we'll get onto some of the sort of like practical tools and stuff that that we use with philosophy work when we're doing, say, like self-awareness workshops or like change workshops where we're trying to help people through some of these things. And it's not just, you know, set a timer on your phone and, and think through it because a lot of times, because we are so habitual, it takes more than that, right? So, so there are things we can do, but I think that as a, as a sort of high level start, I think we need to practice checking in with ourselves of why have I said yes to this? Why am I doing this? And noticing the, the, the thought process in the background in a lot of way, that that's what philosophy is. Like that's what it, it, it involves. Again, not philosophies or philosophers, but doing philosophy involves us paying attention to how we're thinking and how that thinking is informing what we're doing, because that's a, that, that doesn't mean we're going to change, but that's a really important starting place for getting some of the change happening. Interesting. I read something recently this weekend about uh, thinking rather than just doing. And sometimes I can be in doing mode or like problem solving mode. And for me personally, I have to sit back and think and be like, is this the right thing to do? Yeah. Um, and actually coming on to that, I read recently that the World Economic Forum recently outlined the top skills for 2023 are analytical thinking, creative thinking, and then finally something that they call resilience, flexibility, and agility. Mm. how do you help people cultivate these skills great question um so first of all we we model it through the wisdom of the ages right so i mentioned before that we don't go around sort of quoting philosophers too much um but we will often say okay um here's here's a thinker who spent a lot of their life trying to work out how to be more self-aware so they're a pretty good place to start right so we might say so one, one of my colleagues um sky cleary she teaches philosophy at Columbia University in New York, and she leads on a lot of the work that we do around self-awareness because um, in addition to her teaching work, she has a, a, a depth of research expertise on the work of Simone de Beauvoir, who's the French existentialist philosopher who talked a lot about authenticity. And so Sky all the time is, is thinking about what does it mean to live an authentic life? And that means you know being aware of self and, and how we understand ourselves. So for example, when we're then working with a group and going okay we need to be more adaptable let's say is what you know that flexible point that the world economic forum brought up okay well some of that starts with us being aware of how we're how we're responding right now are we um are we just uh just reacting where we want to respond and how do we make ourselves be more flexible so sky might come in and say well do you know what here's what Simone Beauvoir said it's not that we want you to be able to quote Simone de Beauvoir but there's a really important nugget there and we're going to bring that in and now say with the group, what does that make you think of? So I think one of the first moves that we do to help people actually develop those skills is we try to get out of the way to a certain extent while giving them the tools and the structured um, process for thinking for themselves. Because if we go into, I mean, all those all those skills that you read out um, from the WF of you know uh, resilience, flexibility, analytical thinking, creative thinking, they're not the kinds of things that anyone gets better at 
by being told what to do, right? They're the kinds of things that we only really improve through having a go and thinking for ourselves. And so we might, we often start with a quote from Simone de Beauvoir, let's say, that gets to the heart of self-awareness, or we might start with um, uh, something from another thinker on how to think critically, but then we go, right, everyone, what does that make you think of about the work that you're doing in financial services? Because when we get out of the way, when we get the, the sort of historical philosophers out of the way, then people go, oh, well, that made me think about this thing. But do you know what? Maybe it's a different context for us. And so we wrestle with that. We go, OK, actually, no, what I think they're talking about is what you're talking about. But let's unpack that. So the, the arc is we always start by defining terms. What do we mean by critical thinking? Um, what do we, you know, why does it really matter? Let's talk about your landscape as a team or as a business and, and get people talking about, well, where does thinking really come into your work? Um, like you said, Laura, maybe a lot of us don't take enough time to think, but then if we said, okay, great, I've blocked out an hour to think, I've got a nice coffee and a sharp pencil, what do I do, right? Um, and so we might talk about that landscape, define the terms, and then we'll say, all right, now here's a couple things that we could do. So we might say, um, you know, we have a neural mapping technique that we often use where we'll take a term. So maybe we're working with a group of leaders that are trying to do something strategic or they're coming up with a new strategy for their, their business. And one of the values at the heart of that is like inclusivity or something, right? Um, so we would get them to actually write the word inclusive uh, down on the page, circle it, and then see what comes to mind for them and map that out. Um, and uh, then continue mapping the sort of thought process, almost like a word association exercise as a way to get them in the back door of their minds um, and, and effectively get the neural pathways in their brain down onto the page so that we can then say, right, we're, so, so thinking is just doing stuff with information, right? And we're now getting this group to do stuff with the information they have in their heads about that specific value that they're wanting to work on. And we're not gonna be able to come up with a strategy or a plan that's really well thought through if we haven't done that mapping piece around what's your landscape? What does this matter? How are you currently thinking about it? Because then what philosophy, like philosophy needs a, um, it's a tool, but it needs to be fed, right? Um, a hammer is no good unless you've got nails, right? And philosophy is kind of static unless you're giving it a lived context. Um, logic is, isn't helpful unless we're saying, okay, well, what do we think about this? And so we get the group to say, well, here's how we currently think about it. Here's the data we've got. And then philosophy helps us come in and go, okay, so do the conclusions that we're coming to, are they well-formed? Are they following from our, from our premises? Um, how are we thinking through these things? And so I guess to, it's a bit of a long answer to come back to the question, the way that we help people develop those skills that are necessarily human and are hard work. You know, like anytime creative thinking, you can't do sort of just paint by number. Um, we have to engage our brains, but there are best practice and that's what we teach people. Um, and some of the best practices, paying attention, uh, checking your own thinking, checking the thinking in the room, paying attention to your landscape, and then having really specific ways of mapping them out and asking the right questions. So we go, why are we thinking this? How could we be more creative? These, these sorts of points that are, that are really helpful for us. So um, long, long story short, we get people doing it in the session and, and hitting walls and then going, mm, why was that hard? Okay, what can we do differently so that they really know how to do it on their own once we're not there with them? Fantastic. Talk about the sessions you run and the workshop as well. Um, we noticed that you have nine um, thinking skills that you specifically highlight on your website. Um, I'm just going to quickly just run through each of the nine just by saying their name. 
And then what I'd like you to do is just pick on a couple that maybe I've maybe underrated, which are the ones that uh, we don't really talk about all the time. So the first one is self-awareness. Number two is trust and psychological safety. Three, we have curiosity. Four, critical thinking. Five, creative thinking. Six, strategic thinking. Seven is decision making. Eight, communicating your ideas. And nine, thinking through change. All of the things that we've almost touched upon already uh, and also are very relevant. So yeah, which would you say are the sort of the underrated ones? Maybe things that people don't, uh, articulate or focus on uh, or historically have not paid as much attention to yeah yeah really good question so i'll start there's a couple a couple ways to 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 come at it right so historically there were lots i mean almost all those things were not focused on historically traditionally right certainly in the in the workplace unless you were you thought of yourself yourself as doing particularly creative work or or sort of thought-based work right so of course academics for a, lo a long time focused on pretty much all those things. Um, if you were a creative in an ad agency or something, you would have focused on creative thinking. But I'm assuming that we're, if we're thinking about the broader world of work in you know law firms, financial services, these different spaces, um, yeah, we weren't thinking about self-awareness, right? We weren't thinking about, I mean, if you were a lawyer, you were thinking about critical thinking, but you were applying it to a very specific use case. It was, okay, I've got this contract. That I need to analyze and I need to we used to talk a lot about things like professional skepticism so that's where it came in but what we're seeing now is a shift to no no no. we don't just need our, our lawyers to be able to think critically with the document in mind we need them to be able to think critically in a way which helps them see around corners for their clients this is something that we, we hear a lot from from the lawyers work with and that's applied critical thinking in a broader context Right. And the same thing with accountants and financial services. So, yes, brilliant at, um, you know, doing the analytical detailed work, what you could say is the critical thinking of sort of checking, checking the, the flow of the money and the accounts and, and are we doing things appropriately and, and efficiently. But now even more, we people are coming to accountants to go, I, I, there's so much uncertainty. I want to make sure that I'm aware of all the things I need to be concerned about. That's not just applying the rules in a system. That's thinking more broadly. And so suddenly, you know, maybe ten years ago, and I've actually I've worked with groups of accountants in financial services that would say, you know, it's kind of like creative accounting is not something you should be doing, right? So I've I've had accountants say to me, right, like it's kind of um, uh, it's problematic for us to be doing a creative thinking workshop. You're not supposed to like get creative with the accounts because that sounds scandalous. But now actually it's much more relevant. And so we're doing creative thinking, but of course it's not, how do you get creative to get around the rules or something like that? It's much more, okay, how do we um, spot, how do we enable our brains to connect dots that we would have otherwise said were disparate so that we can come up with new perspectives on something, which the reason this is relevant to all these sorts of problems is, is because of problem solving, right? So we have more unique problems. Um, sometimes it's called wicked problems. Sometimes it's, um, you know, black swans, these sorts of things, where there's basically a lot of complexity and a lot of uncertainty. We've not been through this before. And so anyone that's in a sort of advisory kind of job, and that, that would be the lawyers, the accountants, all these sorts of people, leaders in general, managers, those skills are becoming much more relevant. So that's kind of the historical point. But then I think um, within businesses these days, you know, the trust topic that you mentioned, um, curiosity, these things, you know, these things have been, they're really, really popular. Um, so I did my PhD on the topic of trust. 
And when philosophy at work does sessions around trust and psychological safety, I still take the lead on those because that's my sort of research background. Um, and that's still really important. I think that's a, a central one because we know we don't think our best if we don't feel safe. So a lot of times we start with that, but that is a topic that um, for a while now people have gone, oh yeah, we know we need that because um, because of all the, the sort of studies that say our oh, trust is, is tricky and, and it's important for us to build trust with our, our clients, our employees, all these sorts of things. The ones that I think are still less talked about, but are, are really, really important are self-awareness and communicating our ideas. And the reason I say that is that self-awareness I, I think it still feels to a lot of people like a nice to have. It feels too soft. And I think that's just because it's hard for us sometimes to conceptualize how being more self-aware is going to have a direct impact on like the bottom line or my productivity for the day or whatever it might be. But of course it does because if I notice, oh, why am I scrolling? Like that's a simple example of self-awareness that helps me get back on task. Or why am I not asking the question that I know is a good question in the meeting. Oh, let me, I noticed the power, the power dynamics in the room and how they're impacting me. So self-awareness is all wrapped up in that, but it just kind of, I think it, it, it feels a bit too soft to people sometimes. So that's one that I think um, the world would do, do well to like, to, to, to grapple with more. And then communicating our ideas is a, another one that I think is, is central. And I say that because there's loads of focus on communication. You know, lots of businesses will have experts come in and work with their people, particularly their managers on like, how to communicate, how to give feedback, right? That's one form of communication, how to have presence when you're speaking and, you know, all this sort of like power posing stuff and all that. But that's focusing on how you are as an embodied communicator. Where we don't see much attention being given is on how you organize your ideas so that you communicate them really clearly. It's almost like, well, if I just sort my breathing and my posture, then it's all going to fall into place. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of doing things to, to, to sort of calm ourselves down or whatever we need to do so that we communicate authentically. But we also need to do the work of, okay, I've, I've done the hard work of curiosity, critical thinking. Now, how do I organize it so that it comes out in a way that people are going to get it? And then I can bring people with me if I'm trying to lead them, right? So, so that session is one that um, I think people love brings in for curiosity and it's a great thing for us to do I, I love sort of helping people think about the questions they need to be asking that's great but communicating the ideas once we've done that work is still something that i'd love to see um the world sort of uh, warm to a little bit more because i think we need more of it so a really interesting point i've seen recently seen a couple of extremes so i recently heard how amazon when they get together and they discuss any big topics there is a ban on powerpoint presentations and mm. the person has to turn up with a written document and for the first 20 minutes there's silence while everyone reads that document yeah, that everyone's and then they're going to the discussions so it's that approach and then also i was at one of these uh, uh, conferences it was by a major bank and the guy stood up and he had one slide which is just the logo and this was that it. And I thought maybe he's going to talk high level. He went deep into, you know, deep wow. learning and some real technical details, but he did it without any slides, just a single one that explained. And he was still able to get across his idea. So it made me start to sort of think about, you know, we've been doing it wrong. Do we focus too much on maybe PowerPoint presentations? Uh, yeah, Amazon feel that, um, I think, see if I can get a phrase right. I think they said that supports or promotes superficial thinking was the way it was described in the, so what's it, you've probably seen different examples of it in terms of trying to communicate your ideas in a, in a really good way. What are some of the techniques that you've seen work that people can try out for themselves? So 
we always go right back to what's what like what's the point of the whole thing <laughs> right and, and i mean that in two ways so what's the purpose of trying to communicate not just like in general but specifically with that room or with the email right or whoever it's, who's who's the audience why what am i trying to do here and we we really um draw on the kind of thinking that um theodore zeldin has shared so he's a oxford sort of you know thinker of all, of everything he's <laughs> done a lot of work and um in his book on conversation he says that you know when minds meet when that is communicate um it's not just a reshuffling of the cards um you're creating new cards that's what we're after it's not just sort of and and not even that it's not sort of like oh i've got some information let me get it in your head let me hand it to you you have some information get it in my head it's not just knowledge sharing what he's after and and this really um sort of resonated with us and that's where we this is why we we start with this idea is that we're going no 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 we're not just trying to get content across we're trying to have all of us leave this conversation or this email or whatever it might be with more than any of us arrived with. And, and if we start from that place, then I think we can be sort of like platform agnostic or, or tech agnostic. Um, so, so I don't think that uh, I, I wouldn't say, oh, let's have a moratorium against all PowerPoint or let's um, have a moratorium against all uh, bullet points in PowerPoint or, or whatever it is, because you can still get that wrong. I might go, I'm going to have no PowerPoint, um, but I'm still going to like talk at people, <laughs> right? Which is problematic. But if we go into it and go, okay, the point of this is for me to, to have my knowledge and your knowledge come together and make something that's greater than that, then if I am going to use PowerPoint, I'm going to not just make it about me having loads and loads of text. Um, and if I don't have PowerPoint, I'm not just going to, I'm not, I'm going to make sure that I use simple words so that it's really clear and people get it. And I'm going to make sure there's time for people to ask questions. And I'm going to try to have a posture of like mentally and everything um, of curiosity about others in the room. I'm going to do whatever I can to make the whole situation comfortable for people so that there is space for that co-creation. And so I guess I, I, you know, we don't, we don't, um, we don't, we're not, we're not sort of great ones for saying, oh, never use PowerPoint or never do this or that. It's much more like, think about what you're trying to do and get clear on your own ideas so that you don't really need to require a lot of notes because that's gonna, that's gonna do some really good practical stuff right off the bat. That's gonna get you, get your eyes up and out into the, the people um, and away from just your notes. It's gonna mean that if you are using, whether it's PowerPoint or something else, if you're using something on a screen, you're not forever just looking behind you and, and everything. Um, and also I, I think a lot of times, you know, the big problem with that people say of um, using slides is there's like too much text on them. And I think a lot of times the reason people put too much text, um, just speaking from my own experience, when I used to put too much text up, it was because I was nervous that I would forget what I was gonna say, right? So it's sort of like a, a, a safety blanket. If I, whatever happens, it's all there, <laughs> right? And I think we could do the same thing with that sort of, what you're calling the sort of Amazon approach of printing it all up. It's all right there. Now, the reason I, I like what you shared about Amazon is that means that everyone's thinking for themselves first about what's on the page, and then they're ready to, to discuss and hear and, and go further. Mm -hmm. That's a really good principle. But again, if I've put down on the page, if I've used language that's like, 
we must be thinking in this way. We must be doing that around the business. And if you don't, you know, you find another place to work, then it doesn't, you know, like the point is not just to have the, the document first. The point is let's communicate in a way that, that encourages knowledge sharing and knowledge co-creation. And so, you know, cause if I'm sat there reading the document beforehand, before someone speaks, I'm like, okay, judging what I just read, I am, this is not a safe place for me to say what I really think or ask my questions, right? So, so I don't think it's about mode or technique as much as it is getting clear on like, what are we trying to, what's the purpose? And then having the mode and technique trickle down from that. I also think that's interesting because it's, I've definitely noticed in virtual meetings, I don't know whether people use this as an excuse, it's harder to get everyone in I feel that sometimes people are driving their own agenda and sometimes because it's only half an hour I think it's definitely it's even harder in 30 minute um meetings to include everyone and actually do that that group thinking because sometimes it feels like people are coming presenting their ideas they want people to say yes this is great maybe the here are some red flags here are some things that I can do to help you rather than actually properly think and talk I think mm. we're so focused on um driving the outcome or what we need to do and what's you know, our objective rather than thinking what's best for the business for all for ourselves. That's just my observation. Um, you spoke before about um how you're really interested in trust and you focus on on kind of cultivating that um with the clients you work with. Obviously, we talk we're we're talking a lot more about kind of like being in a post-truth era and more VUCA, which you mentioned. How can people navigate this using the nuts, nuts and bolts of philosophy? In particular, how can leaders cultivate psychologically safe environments and help teams grow trust? I know that also you do workshops and whole sessions and days on this. But are there any kind of nuggets that our audience could take? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. So just to, to play back, we're thinking about um, specifically the work we do with leaders and around trust and psychological safety in the context of it seems like everything's up for grabs, right? Post-truth, uh, maybe there, I think sometimes we look in the past, well, a lot of times we look in the past with rose tinted glasses um, or not rose tinted glasses. Um, but um, but this point has been made by, by smarter people than myself before COVID and the sort of like home working revolution and, and these hybrid revolution and things. It's not that, you know, productivity was always through the roof and there was, you know, all these sorts of things. It's not that everything was good before, um, but yes, now that we have post-truth and all this sort of stuff that's being talked about, it does feel like there's more of a need for this. Um, and so I guess the, the, the things that I would say just in terms of initial steps that people can take to cultivate psychological safety is to, um, to work, well, first of all, notice your own trustworthiness and then identify ways that you can communicate that to 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 the audience that you're working with so let's say your team now that does a couple different things for us so if the simple point is work out what makes you trustworthy and then communicate that you can't do that in a vacuum so what makes you trustworthy is context sensitive right so if, if, like if we if we think about this um i might say that uh you know i value uh, openness and transparency and um, hearing from all the voices in the room and saying what we really think okay um, that's like an actual value for me as a person so if I think ah that's part of what makes me trustworthy 
I'm therefore going to communicate that and, you know, tell everyone what I really think. Well, there's going to be other members of my team who grew up in families where it really wasn't safe to say what you thought, you know, or maybe have come from other teams where that wasn't okay. And so then if I just, you know, at our next team meeting or something go like, hey, everyone, we're going to really lean into like saying what we really think that could make people very anxious or, or a couple of the team, if that's the kind of background or the, the way that, that, they, that they receive that and actually make me less trustworthy, right? So trustworthiness is context sensitive. And that pushes us back to the point that trust is a relationship in economic theory around trust. A lot of times it's talked about in very transactional terms, which kind of makes sense. It's coming out of that literature, but it's talked as if trust is this commodity. And if we just pull these levers, we build it or we don't or whatever, but actually it's, it's a relationship. And what I mean is it's between a truster and a trustee or a group of trustees, group of truster, you know, and um, and I don't mean trustee in the sort of like role technical sense. I mean, someone that's doing the trusting, um, uh, it's called the truster, a person that's being trusted, we can call the trustee. So if you've got a leader who let's say is the, the truster and also the trustee, because they're trusting the, the, those that they're leading and leadings are trusting them. So you've got this back and forth and all the people involved are seeing what this, uh, are experiencing what's happening between them through their own subjective lenses, right? So I'm thinking, hey, when I say what I really think, that's a good thing, but maybe someone else is receiving it as like, whoa, I really can't trust Brennan because he talks too much or, or like, I don't know, um, it's nice to know where I stand with him, but I feel like if I share something more sensitive, is he just gonna like make light of it or share too much about it? Um, so we have to, so that means that if, if what I said to start was work out what makes you trustworthy and then communicate that trustworthiness, we can't do that without paying a lot of attention to our context and that means before we try communicating before we speak doing lots of listening lots of empathy lots of um i don't want to say experimentation but kind of that like like working out okay who what are the people that i'm working with like what do i notice how do i see them responding you know when i do this or how do I see them responding to each other? So a lot of times in the work that we do with leaders around trust, um, we get them again, mapping out their landscapes, tracking the flow of trust in their own relationships and, and saying, okay, given the knowledge that you have about the people you work with, what do you think it would mean if you did this? Not to you, but what do you think it would mean to them, right? And then we work it back. And so the principle is work out trustworthiness and communicate trustworthiness. But the big question is, what's your context? And so um, I'm trying to be helpful without, you know, without the realization that it's, it is, it is so context sensitive and it's working with the people in the room. But I think that's, that's, a, that's where we all need to start is to say, okay, what, how do I think about trustworthiness? When I think about my network, I mean, here's, here's a great question. If someone wants to go away from listening to this and just have something they do, I would say, look at your professional network and think about where there are people that you trust in that network, what makes them trustworthy to you? And write that down because that that is a start of a of giving you a good read on how you think about trustworthiness and then you know you could ask some of your colleagues that same question hey what do you what what makes someone trustworthy to you and just listen because that that is them then starting to communicate to you how they see trustworthiness and if they say you know i i find it hard to trust people that that are always asking me what i think 
then that's a good read. And I should go, okay, then I, I'm going to make sure that I'm not always sort of saying, what do you really think about all this stuff? So, so I think it's, it's, um, that's, that's some really practical stuff that we can do, but the bigger question is reading your landscape and thinking about what, uh, what's going to be appropriate in that context. Fantastic. I love that practical tip that everyone can go away and do literally today is think about their network. Just as we're wrapping up now, how can our listeners find out more about you and philosophy at work? Where can they find you? Where should they go to learn more? Yeah, uh, perfect. So the website is www.philosophyatwork.co.uk. So that's a good place to start. And then we put out a quarterly newsletter that's called Essential Ideas Quarterly. And um, really intentionally, it's only quarterly. I've had lots of sort of experts say, no, you need to sort of put things out more regularly. Um, but we want to make everything that we put out really um, sort of well thought through and useful rather than just sort of more noise. And so um, the idea with that newsletter is it's not sort of, hey, here's what we're reading or here's our news. Um, there's a bit of news in there, but the main point of it is we want to give people useful tools so that they could open that in their inbox, you know, whenever it works for them. And then hopefully there's something in there that they could actually do or actually take into a meeting. And the, the topic is always based on the conversations we're having with people in businesses. So, you know, we've done things like, um, you know, on the back of everyone talking about burnout, we did a newsletter um, that's just recently come out on beauty. And, you know, what would it mean if we paused on trying to do really efficient work and instead thought, how could we make this work really beautiful? Because I bet if we landed on, if we were in pursuit of beautiful work, we'd be pretty efficient and effective as well. I mean, if you think about like a cherry blossom tree, really beautiful. Um, pretty like it, it, it overproduces, right? It succeeds, um, it's effective, but it's not just about making like that one blossom. There's, I don't know how many blossoms on the tree. It's really beautiful, it's over the top and there, and it's getting you know done what it needs to to survive. So, so we try to do useful things where we go, okay, given the conversations we're having, everyone needs to think about, um, everyone needs a, needs a bit of a refresh and the concept, you know, there's been a lot of philosophy about aesthetics and beauty. There's something that I think is, is interesting and useful there. So let's give people tools and, and helpful thought starters about what would it mean for you to do beautiful work? So it's it's that kind of stuff. So I would say, you know, philosophywork.co.uk and then um, signing up for the newsletter is great. Um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Dr. Underscore Brennan underscore Jacoby. Um, and we're on Instagram as well. Um, and then just, yeah, if there's, you know, leaders out there that want to help their teams and people think their best and are curious about how we can help them do that, then do get in touch as well. We'd love to have a conversation. Thanks for wrapping up with that uh, imagery of the blossoming tree. I love it. So Dr. Brennan Jacoby, thank you so much for joining us on the Leading the Future podcast. And uh, we will hopefully speak to you again soon. Perfect. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Laura. It's been an absolute pleasure.